Ah, are you recording? I certainly am. Okay, I am not. Let me... Oh, never mind. I am recording. Look at that. All right. Boy, I hope I haven't been doing that all day. You are listening to Priority, a podcast about choices, limitations, and getting stuff done. Today's episode is entitled Schrodinger's Listicle. For complete show notes, including links to anything we discuss on the program today, visit us online at priority.fm slash five. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about uh, this event that you talked about on Facebook um, where you were going to a place to do a thing. Uh, as you can tell, I'm a very good brother because I know things. Okay. That you talk about on Facebook. <laughs> well, we know how you feel about uh, Facebook. Indeed. Um, but you were you were doing um, some kind of reading or presentation oh. thing. So, yes. yes, you were doing a thing. <laughs> um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that actually first. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. Uh, just specifically, like, kind of what you're doing, and that will lead me into what my, my notional topic is. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, last Friday, I had the distinct pleasure and privilege um, to read some of my creative writing to a group of my peers. Um, and n- non-peers, too, I guess. Um, the graduate department in which I uh, participate does a creative writing mm-hmm. reading series. So when you say when you say non peers, do you mean like your superiors were there as well, or do you mean there were peasants uh, at the event? Uh, the common folk are welcome. <laughs> they may grovel, they may kiss my hand. Um, no, no, no. I, I clarified. We host this event in a public venue, and it is not a private space in a public venue. It's a completely public gotcha. venue. So um, while most of the people there were my peers in some regard. Um, it's also just a, a business, a public business, so it um, might have had other people there as well. That was my clarification. Sure. Yes. So you were reading reading some creative writing that you had done. I was indeed. Exciting. Um, was this was this uh, work that you had done in the course of preparing for your degree, or was it just just something in general? You know, writings of your own, and you were doing a reading. Um, combination. Um, so I read three pieces, one of which, uh, had been in my master's thesis. The other two, you could say I was writing for fun slash future publication. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so my question for you is, this is, this is an event where you were taking work of yours and putting it in front of people, um, presumably some of whom had not seen this kind of, this work from you before. Yes. Um, and it's also something that I know you've done a good deal of and, and have some background in, uh, even professionally, but something that a lot of people are very frightened of, which is public speaking. Mm. Um, so I am curious, both specifically for this event and just in general, uh, how you went about and go about preparing for such a thing. Oh, oh my. Um, well, maybe I'll talk specifically about this event, um, because it just happened and it's a, an example. Yeah. Um, Sure. So the week before, I mean, this event has been 
scheduled for some time. It's a tradition in our department um, and something that's usually scheduled at the beginning of the academic year. Um, so I had been thinking loosely about what I would want to read. Um, I don't know if this be a, would be of interest, but it's also sort of funny that I use this event as motivation to start working in earnest on a piece. <laughs> um, and a lot of folks, I know a lot of folks who will do this with, <laughs> this sounds bad, with academic publications and mm. academic conferences, but they will use uh, the proposal process to give them the, mm-hmm. the kick in the butt. Right, to- <laughs> right. You, you agree to do something at a time and a place and that gives you a deadline and an, an audience who is expecting. Yeah. 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 Because in academia in particular, sometimes it's very easy to put your own work aside when the expectations that other people have for you sort of bear down on you. Mm-hmm. Unless, of course, you can give yourself, um, yeah, a deadline and a tangible expectation that way. Um, so that was a fruitful (laughs) decision for me to do to myself, um, because I did get deeper into a draft of something else. What's funny is that I did not end up finishing it in time. So (laughs) it is not one of the three things that I read. Um, so anyway, so that's sort of the, the long, uh, the preamble to the story, I guess. Um, then the week of, um, I went about reviewing some of my, materials, trying to winnow down the pile and decide what would be uh, good candidates for the reading. Um, I had some shorter pieces in mind, so I was thinking about what pieces might work well together and sort of speak to each other thematically, that sort of thing. Um, As I was doing that, I was doing some reading aloud, trying to think about what those pieces would sound like in front of an audience to see if I really did want to commit to reading them. Uh, And then day of, I did a lot of read-throughs, both sitting down, standing up, um, trying to project to a room with the actual scripts I had printed out and that would use that night. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Preparation. (laughs) Preparation. That is what I want to talk about today. and it's it's something that uh, I figured you we had a you know a tangible example of something that you did, um, <laughs> but yeah, I wanted to talk about preparation. Oh. And um, yeah, I'll I'll reference again, and this will be in show notes uh, for the second week in a in a row. Uh, episode number eleven of Inquisitive <laughs> uh, Merlin as a Service. <laughs> because a lot of that, uh, that actually, um, in a different way than what we talked about previously from that episode, uh, previously we talked about Inbox Zero, um, and, uh, Merlin's follow-up comments about, about how that term is used in that episode. Um, a lot more of the meat of it, though, is about, uh, he talks about preparation and how he podcasts mm. and, um, and kind of the things he does to get ready or doesn't do to get ready, um, and, and I don't know, I, I have several different notes and several different angles to approach this from. Um, but the, the speech angle and, uh, and, and the angle of this reading that you just did occurred to me as particularly fruitful because, um, you know something about speech, <laughs> um, you, you coach competitive speech, uh, as well as, you know, have done a lot of that yourself. And, um, it's, it's something that, uh, people are really bad at in part because they don't prepare for very well, <laughs> mm. um, often. Mm. Uh, I, for example, prepared to do the uh, semi-public speaking that we're doing now by <laughs> hastily looking at the internet for 20 minutes before I left work today. I think that's how people prepare for a lot of things. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's probably why they're bad at a lot of things. Um, so I, anyhow, I'm, I think I'll just throw out several I- short ideas here, and then um, we can walk down whatever path they make you think of or any Fabulous. of these that you want to pursue further, since uh, I prepared for this episode and you did not. <laughs> you prepared um, for preparation. <laughs> I did. Uh, so... Several things um, I think that are interesting about preparation. Um, one, I I think I'm taking this from David Allen. Um, I might be getting it from Tom Peters. I don't know. Um, so just insert random business guru here. Um, <laughs> has has raised this example, which I think is a good example. So in most professional activities, we spend almost all of our time actually doing or pretending to do or avoiding doing the activity, uh, and then have a few hours a year to, dedicated to training. Um, but in some fields, mm. training is a much bigger portion of your, your month or even your week. And in a few cases, and one, and this is the example that again, I don't remember who I got it from, but I think it's, I think it's telling. Um, one example in particular, if you think of a professional sports team, like a football team mm-hmm. or, or a basketball team, uh, we are now talking about people who spend almost their entire week doing nothing but but preparing mm-hmm. for a very relatively short time on the field. Right. You know, their their actual quote-unquote work week um, is almost all training for a game that will be just a few hours on one particular day. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. and, and a season that doesn't even go through the entire year. Sure, uh, yeah, there's an off-season. Yeah, so so mm-hmm. there's an example of, of high-level performers who spend almost all of their time in preparation and almost none of their time delivering, uh, but arguably, boy, boy, do they ever deliver. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and sort of a related example to that, um, Winston Churchill has said that he spent an hour working on a speech for every minute that he was actually going to be delivering it. Ooh, that's super. I need to dig into that. That's yeah, I don't, I don't know the actual providence of that, but I sure. know I can find at least 10 sources <laughs> that saying claim it's it. true uh, because I did right before we well, got in here. Well, as Abraham Lincoln said, the internet is a tangled web. <laughs> yeah, Lincoln also had a, has, a, has a quote, something along these lines too, where he said if he had eight hours to chop down a tree, he would spend the first six sharpening the axe. Um, no, that was definitely David Allen. Oh, no, that was the saw. I'm pretty sure you're thinking of Mark Twain. I think you're thinking of Cherry Tree. Um... Mm. Uh, but anyhow, <laughs> so so there's, you know, preparation is, is something we do way too little of and some examples of extreme preparation. Mm. Um, another angle to approach it from uh, is sort of the, uh, the, I'll pick another figure from history, also World War II related, uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower, who very famously said, and this is an actual quote, uh, in preparing for battle, I have always found that plans are useless, but planning is indispensable. Ooh, ooh, yes. Okay. And that's that's um, that also actually I think does tie into the sports example a good deal, because uh, in sports ball, and I'm... I'll speak generically because I think it's true in every sport. Um, you are actually not training for a specific game plan that you will be able to execute as such. You know, you need to be able to react in, in real time to the mm-hmm. plays that the other team is making um, and the decisions that individual players are making. So, yep. you know, similarly, you, you can plan all week, but your plans will have to be executed piecemeal, ad hoc, you know, as the situation demands. But anyhow, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, plans are useless. Planning is indispensable. Dwight D. Eisenhower. Um, so I like that one. 
Uh, and that's also, that ties back into that episode of Inquisitive I was just talking about, because if memory serves in that, Merlin talked about preparation for episodes of, of for instance, Back to Work, mm-hmm. um, more in that he likes to prepare a little bit so that if if they show up and nothing's really coming, as far as topics go, um, you know, he can he can pull out whatever he prepped on and, and have something to fall back on. Um, but the show is usually, you know, they show up and start talking and, and whatever emerges is the show. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's in a very similar vein to the Eisenhower quote. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, then maybe one last thing I'll throw in here. Um, and then we can pick one of these trails to run down. Um, David Allen, and I do know this one is David Allen for sure that I'm getting it from, uh, in his book, Ready for Anything, talks about the importance of readiness as a professional competency. Mm-hmm. Um, and, a, and a key question to ask yourself or of anybody else you're considering for a job or a promotion is how fast can you or they get back to ready? You know, if you're surprised, you're, you're overtaken by something, you know, things are not going well, how quickly can you regain control of the situation, at least to the point where you're ready for the next thing, mm-hmm. um, even if you're not done? Sure. Um, all right. So there's a few threads on preparedness. Um, and of course, <laughs> if you have something else speech related, we can go into that too. Sure. No, I'm definitely, and maybe this is just says more about the nature of my life right now that <laughs> everything, I, I'm finding lots of connections um, to writing and teaching and speech. Um, mm-hmm. But maybe because I'm always in all of those brains to some extent. (laughs) So, of course, things feel connected to me. Um, Very cool. Super cool. Um, What I, yeah, maybe what I'm drawn to the most and might be a good place to jump in. So, so Churchill had the, that ratio of time spent prepping to time spent actually speaking. Mm -hmm. Um, Uh, One hour to one. Yeah. One minute. One minute. Yeah. And then um, you said it was, Eisenhower planning, not plans themselves. Right. Plans are useless, but planning is indispensable. Mm. Yeah, I'm really drawn to those two. Um, it makes me think of a phenomenon that happens a lot when we're consuming art of any type. So whether we're um, watching some sort of live performance uh, or looking or reading something particularly powerful, the way that um, a talented artist makes their artistry look really easy. Mm-hmm. And that's almost infuriating and scary when you try to think about being artful in your own work. But then you right. remember, in most cases, the effect of making something look as if it were easy <laughs> actually takes a crap ton of time and effort um, to execute. That maybe that line that seemed so so seamless and so natural where it fell in the piece um, might have actually taken them years of rewriting over and over again mm-hmm. before they got the effect that they wanted. Um, right. Um, and and also, I, I think when talking about creative endeavors in particular and, and writing, I, I know this one because uh, it happens to me. Often <laughs> the one that looks so so seamless and effortless and, and exactly perfectly placed and executed – uh, that line, as often as not, is probably also an accident. Yeah, it absolutely could be. You know, it mm-hmm. it 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 often will be um, effortless uh, in the sense that you know how it ended up the way it is uh, took very little effort and couldn't be reproduced, 
even even mm. by an expert who frequently writes lines that well. Mm. Um, you know, one one thing I think that uh, I'll, I'll try to find something about this for show notes, but I've I've heard it said in studies of expertise that um, there are a lot of people who can very expertly do something but can't really tell you how. Um, mm. I, I know I can find one example, uh, Merlin. Uh, talking about this uh, in relation to like a butcher who you know can put an amount of meat on the scale without looking at the at the scale mm-hmm. and just know that it's one pound before he looks right uh, because he's been doing it for thirty years but there's no trick he can tell you like there's no process right you know he's just been doing he has a feel for it he has an ear for it if he's writing he has mm-hmm. a um you know she has she has a knack for knowing when the right answer is there in the formula the equation in front of her but you know mm-hmm. she couldn't tell you how. She knows um, until yeah. after she's worked it out, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, you know, which isn't to say expertise and, and good art is always mysterious, just that um, I think part of this is, and, you know, same thing. I think this would also go in sports. Like you're not always <laughs> going to know how the perfect play is going to play out before you actually get on the field and do it. No, no. You know. Um, yeah. These are all live dynamic experiences. Sometimes they just happen. There are a lot of different mm-hmm. factors and circumstances. Yeah. Um, um, mm-hmm. and, and just one coda on the writing thing in particular. And that's not to say that <laughs> the effortless-looking perfect thing can't also be wrestled to the ground through massive effort and revision and drafting and showing oh, people. Yeah. And, I, yeah. I know it what you're can, saying. It can happen that mm-hmm. way, too. I think you're um, playing devil's advocate a little bit about the serendipity that can sometimes happen. Mm-hmm. in a creative totally. process the totally. no so i totally appreciate the yeah. the unexplainable yeah. or the 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 unexplainable know. too though i think i think i would credit uh preparation a lot i think if you write <laughs> a lot you will get more of those not just because of the quantity you put on the page but i think you'll get more by percentage because mm. um, you will develop a sense of of where to go and you know mm-hmm. when to trust and when to flow and you know mm-hmm. yeah anyway. with that and the the butcher example i'm thinking about the way that just practicing your <laughs> practice, your whatever, your work, um, breeds a real familiarity with the work itself. Mm-hmm. And this ties back to writing again. Um, the idea that the process itself is the valuable thing, I think, is illustrated by the, the butcher example. The mm-hmm. end goal, like the definition of being a good butcher, is not <laughs> being able to by hand, by by sensation, judge how heavy a slab of meat is. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that was a really weird thing to say. Um, mm. There are other ways of defining the proficiency and the skill of a butcher. Um, but it's one of those uh, helpful, familiar things that happens when you are doing the work and practicing the work right. um, for so long. So I'm also thinking about the way that... Um, the process itself is the valuable part of the work and not so much the end the end product. So in writing, for instance, and you kind of mentioned this in another way, um, the more you do it, the easier it becomes. But mm-hmm. that doesn't happen from necessarily producing lots and lots of good things. <laughs> um, it can happen by producing lots of bad and sort of shaky things and reflecting on them. Um, as you grow. Yeah, there's um a lot of my favorite uh writing books having uh have have lots of lots to say about the process of like free writing and oh yeah. uh and really really rough drafting. Um and uh, I'm thinking in particular of a book called The Craft of Revision by mm. 
um, famous writing coach guy who used to have a column and died. Um, uh, gosh. Donald Murray. <laughs> What's that? Donald Murray. Donald Murray. That's the man. Yes, I was just trying to Google for it and mm-hmm. fumbling and <laughs> not finding it. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Craft of Revision in particular, um, I'm thinking of as, as you know, the first, the first time... I, you you can't really avoid the idea of free writing if you're looking at how to write. Um, it's everywhere. But that was mm-hmm. the first time that I read anything about it that made me go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, okay, so just, so just because, you know, this is also my jam. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> what, what had you resistant in other things you had read? Not that you have to recall what you were reading, uh, but... Sure. No, I think I think every every other textbook and teacher up until that point who had encouraged me to do that. I writing is something that I never, even when I wasn't very good at it. Um, so really, I guess even today. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but even when I was much worse at it than I am now, um, I, it's never something that came hard to me. It was it was uh... never something. At least at least as as far back as like you know early high school, junior high kind of, you know, maybe in elementary school, the first time I had to do a three-paragraph pseudo-report on something from the library, I probably <laughs> stared at the page until blood came out of my forehead. Um, but it's never something I had a hard time doing, so I was always very resistant to, like, free writing, because I'm like, well, no, I just think of what I want to write, and then I write it. Like, I don't need to, you know, <laughs> I don't need to free associate <laughs> on the page until something happens. I'll just make it happen. You know, I got this. Leave me alone. <laughs> but no, that's, yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. Um, and I... I couldn't I couldn't tell you for certain what exactly is in the craft of revision about free writing. I do know it strongly emphasizes the importance of just getting a draft started, um, and just I think I think the overall approach of the book, where it talked about writing as an iterative process, as something mm-hmm. you do again and again. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, if I'm remembering the book right, it made the argument, and if I'm not remembering the book right, then you know it put the argument in my head, in my memory <laughs> at least, that writing is really the craft of revision, hence the title, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the whole point of the process is that you're not going to do it just once. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that kind of freed me up from some of my, my resistance to it. The idea that, you know, what I start with doesn't even have to look like what I end up with. Um, what mm-hmm. I start with is probably where the idea that I'm going to start with when I really start is going to come from. Mm-hmm. You know, I have mm-hmm. to start writing to even know what it's going to be about. And that's, that's been true of all the best stuff that I've, that I've done. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but anyhow, yeah, the, the, I think where I was going with all of that, why I brought it up was free writing up was, um, with, with what you were saying about the practice and, and the serendipities. And if it's not about writing a lot of good things, um, I think the importance of things like free writing and like, you know, writing every day, people who talk about, you know, morning pages and stuff like that, um, uh, a lot of the value of that is you don't know when you start what's going to be a good line and your sense of what is mm-hmm. a good, like even seeing a bunch of good lines doesn't really tell you what's going to be your good line. Um, you kind of have to stumble on a lot of those, I think, or at least it helps, you know, For sure. <laughs> it helps to just start putting words on the page and trying things out because you'll stumble upon, you know, mm-hmm. a turn of phrase that you go, Ooh, you know, I never would have planned that, but that's really good. Right. Uh, and the more of the more of those you do, you'll start to recognize patterns and start to know how to do some of them, at least some of the time, mm-hmm. you know, deliberately. Yeah. I'm thinking about the ways that practice or preparation, and I guess they're sort of blurring, but maybe in some of these ways they're, they're similar enough. Um, but I'm thinking mm-hmm. about the ways that uh, this time we spend working uh, 
gives us more opportunities for those things to happen. Um, mm-hmm. Which is kind of what you're saying. So I'm thinking right. about the ways that, oh, that I think it was also a Lincoln of something about you miss 110% of the shots you don't take on the internet, something like that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a, that was Abraham Lincoln speaking about basketball, I believe. Uh, the hoops. Yeah, he's a tall yeah. guy. Mm-hmm. Tall guy, mm-hmm. big hat. Yeah, um, all American. It was all talent under the hat. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my god! Um, no, it's that really awful. Uh, I think it was an athlete. Well, it must have been. Oh no, I think it's often credited to Wayne Gretzky. I was just gonna say Wayne Gretzky. You, no, I think it is. That's where <laughs> I've seen it attributed to the most. Um, mm-hmm. You miss one hundred percent of the shots you don't take. I yeah. I hate the the cliche, and I appreciate the idea <laughs> <laughs> because that's what you're talking about. If you don't right. sit down to write then you have nothing to work with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, totally. If you let yourself play and you let yourself um, just try, mm-hmm. then maybe you can see what's even possible. But if you don't let yourself try, then how are you going to know what's possible? Right. And as I'm, as I'm thinking about it too, um, talking about practice and preparation and how they blur together with writing in particular, yeah. I'm also thinking about the way I write. Um, a lot of the preparation like some of the 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 quote unquote research that goes into a piece that I'm writing very often ends up being the first draft or few drafts or or some random free writing you know scribbles or or <laughs> a quick dashed off note in my iPhone um very often that's that is as much raw material as the other quote unquote preparation that I would do in researching a topic and gathering material and reading and you know um it's 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 research just as much as the rest of it because it, it's ideas that I don't have before I go get them, you know. Yeah, um, can, and it ends mm-hmm. up it ends up being more of a source that I draw on as I write, you know, some of the early drafts than an actual draft. Um, yeah, can I can I ask a few clarifying questions? Mm-hmm, absolutely. So are, so are you saying um, some of your your note taking and the way that you process information early on? ends up being sort of foundational the way other outside resources are. Right. Is that what it's you're yes, yeah, and in two ways. One, um I, you know, before I read the outside source, I don't know what it says and I don't know what to report <laughs> on it saying. And mm-hmm. similarly, before I write and sometimes before I even go back and read um something I've I've written on that same topic, you know, it's it's also information I don't have ahead of time. Oh yeah, they um, call that a Schrodinger's article. <laughs> Exactly. Um, <laughs> Schrodinger's listicle. Yes, yeah, Schrodinger's listicle. <laughs> Oof. Uh, title. Um, yeah, but it's it it ends up being um, grist for the mill. Like when mm. I actually sit down and I really write what a draft that starts to look like the finished piece. Very often, I'm looking at what I wrote before, um, much the same way I look at the other sources. You know, mm-hmm. as as material to pull in. Um, luckily, that earlier version is not published. So I don't have to cite it anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> It's mm-hmm. not plagiarism. <laughs> um, but it feels like by the time I actually get around to writing, very often whatever I wrote first feels as foreign as the sources do, mm. if that makes sense. Hmm. Um, you know, so it's still, it's still, it's, it's both practicing writing, you know, it's a practice run at writing whatever I'm going to write, mm-hmm. but it's also preparation in that I'm still gathering information. It's just at that point I'm gathering it from inside, mm-hmm. you know, I'm mm-hmm. gathering my feelings. I'm gathering connections I don't realize I've made yet. Right. No, I feel like this happens a lot. Um, you know, in my work, I'm seeing a lot of students 
in their writing process. Um, Mm -hmm. So it might be essays for different courses, all different departments. But often something that will happen is in early drafts on big topics that are new to a student, there will be a lot of space in that essay spent simply summarizing the information and establishing background Mm -hmm. before the student is able to start articulating their own thoughts and interpretations about the topic. Mm-hmm. But often what they're doing is they're they're just getting their minds around the topic. They're thinking their way into what they think. <laughs> right. They had to gather and process that information before they could even start drawing conclusions. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think that's absolutely. a completely it's a completely natural part of the process. Um, right. Oh, there's a great quotation. I'm forgetting what author said this, but I think of it often. Um, it's something along the lines of, well, how am I supposed to know what I think until I start writing <laughs> mm-hmm. um, about a topic they're going to write about? Um, how until I start writing? I can't remember who it was. Um, we'll say Abe Lincoln. I think I saw it on his Facebook page. Uh, on Lincoln's Facebook page. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I so appreciate that. Um, and this might be slightly tangential, but one theory I sort of have for how writing and how communication work in my life is that I I think I have a lot of extroverted tendencies um, in my personality, in my communication style, in lots of things. Um, but something that would seem maybe sort of contrary to that is that I also find journaling and personal writing really important to me and to mm. keeping my mind functioning well. Mm-hmm. But something that I've sort of thought of, because when I was first learning, oh no, here we go. When I was reading Susan Cain's Quiet, <laughs> I'm taking a drink, excuse me. <laughs> I um, didn't even have to bring it up. Oh no, I've been drinking the whole time you've been talking. Um, <laughs> we've had lots of David Allen, lots of Merlin. Um, that sounded really rude now that I listened to that. I've been drinking the whole time you've been talking. Um, <laughs> you're insufferable. Um, <laughs> Tell the audience something they don't know. <laughs> no, I'm just laughing at myself. Do you remember um, what you were going to say <laughs> if we completely derailed it? Probably. Um, okay. Did I get off at the wrong station? No. So, so when I was first reading Susan Cain's Quiet, um, I think that's the first time I started thinking about this. And I was trying to reconcile the fact that I think in a lot of ways I identify as an extrovert, but that in addition to the social interaction that I crave and that I feed off of, I also really, really need the more introspective thinking of journaling, of writing. Like that's also very, very important to me. So I was trying to reconcile those two things because they seemed uh, opposite or at least very different. But what I... What I've been realizing is that I think that whereas people maybe who are more introverted than me um, are doing a lot more processing before they even speak, I get to a lot of my thinking through communication. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? No, it, <laughs> and it I'm totally doing it does. right now. <laughs> like I need yeah, to... oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think I've probably done it several times in the course of the podcast. And it's uh, it's a common idea, as you said. There's the Abraham Lincoln quote about um, how not knowing what he thinks unless he writes it. Um, and I think some of the best art and some of the best writing lets us go through that process with a person mm-hmm. or with a character. Right. Um, it's a process of discovery or realization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and I'm I'm thinking about just even our show. Um, 
the the learning episode, I came in feeling very shaky about whether I had anything to contribute on the topic. <laughs> and by the end of it, I think I said a couple of, of very interesting and at least one pseudo important thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could not have articulated them ahead of time. Like, yeah. I don't think I would have come up with them. I, I certainly don't think I felt very strongly about either of them until I'd said them. Um, <laughs> you know, but by the end of it, I, I think I put a couple ideas out there that I really like and that mm-hmm. I've thought a lot about since then. <laughs> uh, and they only emerged because we talked about them. You know, yeah. and let them emerge. Yeah. Um, and if I were to write something about learning now, I think one or both of those ideas is what I would go after. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but again, I couldn't have I couldn't have had them without the preparation of having talked about <laughs> them with you in front of everybody and what ended up being the finished product. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, I think that's valuable too. Yeah. So, so everyone, this mm-hmm. podcast is just Katie and I getting ready to do some other more important work. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, our guinea pigs. Yeah, this is our practice footage. The common folk. What did you say? The peasants? <laughs> the peasants in the audience? Peasants, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, right. absolutely. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking about this, this, um, you talked about students putting down uh, tons of exposition about what their sources have said mm-hmm. before they get to what they think. And, and I think, I, um, uh, I'll try to find a link to this. I, I don't remember who said it. Some blogger or other said that very often when he writes a long piece, um, it might be it might be John Gruber. So I think I might be able to find a link to it. He said very often when he writes a long piece, he finds that that whatever the first paragraph is, he can he can usually just cut it and start wherever the second paragraph started, mm, yeah, and it's yeah. a better starting point. Um, I have found that as well. Usually, whatever I write as my introduction to anything. Uh, and I do this with emails too. I find I do this a lot with emails. Like whatever the, if I have a three or four paragraph email, the preamble paragraph, the first one can usually just get cut. Mm. You know, it's, um, I, I, I think I do that as well though. I put down a lot of, a lot of facts and figures and, and citations, you know, as I'm writing anything. And then a lot of that is what ends up getting cut. Mm. Um, you know, I have to get through all that before I can get to my thinking. For sure. Uh, but the reader ultimately won't need all that. You know, once I've got my thinking down, I can look and say, okay, what do I really need to support this and go back and cut everything but that? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really a lot of my, I don't know, this is turning from preparation to writing, I guess, but <laughs> I've, I've said to you before, a lot of my writing process, a lot of my revision process is cutting. Um, my tendency is, you know, if I need a thousand words on something to write 4,000 and then cut them until I've got one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of of the school that, you know, I, I write a block of marble and then I carve away from it until I have Michelangelo's Abe Lincoln. (laughs) (laughs) I like that too. Um, no, absolutely. And that's such an important skill, the, the ability to, to step away from your own work and see what it's doing, no matter what it is. So Mm. that you have the the distance or perspective to know when you're being repetitive or to know when you um, are sort of circling around the topic without naming it. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's all, that's what revision is. Um, It's coming back and seeing it differently, literally Mm -hmm. to see again, to revise. Right. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. This, this might be a way back into uh, the topic of preparation. (laughs) Um, but uh, y- what you just said about looking at your work and seeing, like, what's working and what isn't. And um, 
that that reminded me going back to the the Dwight D Eisenhower quote about plans being useless but planning being indispensable. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I guess I think a lot of what we're saying here is is you know the process of doing writing towards whatever you write, you know, or or in other contexts, doing preparation towards whatever it is you're trying to do is valuable, but you know that that your initial plan for how you're going to do that um, and your initial version of what you're doing might often be you know, not what you need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think you sort of alluded to this. Um, it came up in the sports ball talk too. Um, and maybe it's related to the readiness idea. Also, the thing that you're really getting ready for is not the product of a particular play or, um, written text or art piece or whatever. Um, in a lot of cases, what you're preparing for is uh, you're trying to prepare to to be able to react. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Does that make sense? I, oh, it totally does. And I think that's I think that's exactly right. And I think that's where the where the sports analogy is strongest is <laughs> you know you are getting ready not just to be able to do something but to be able to react to and counter what other people are going to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and without really knowing for certain what they what it is they're going to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and this fits into the speech stuff perfectly. So, you know, you were asking me about the the reading I gave, um, but when I'm working with students, or even when I was a student myself doing competitive speaking, um, <laughs> and let's be honest, if I'm doing it, it is competitive. So, <laughs> um, just kidding. Like there are no winners and losers at the readings. Um, everyone gets a ribbon. Um, (laughs) everyone gets clapping and beer. (laughs) Mm. Um, (laughs) but I'm thinking about how, um, even though many of those events are prepared and you are working from a set script or a set, um, you know, you have parameters for what could and should happen once you get to the competition or get to the reading or whatever. Um, Mm. you still have to remember that anything could happen. Someone, <laughs> and this has happened, um, you may be in a room with um, your speech judge and a handful of other students as audience members, and suddenly someone might stand up and get violently ill in the middle of the room. That could happen. <laughs> that it is completely happen. within the realm mm-hmm. of possibility. It can and has and will happen. <laughs> you you may accidentally uh, have chosen a venue where Statler and Waldorf are drinking that night. <laughs> There may be a balcony. There may be a balcony. Oh, that number goes back a long ways. Oh, it didn't go back far enough. Mm. I could still see it. (laughs) (laughs) There may be hecklers. You don't know. Yes. So, so to a certain extent, that preparing for that moment should be part of your process. Um, Mm -hmm. and maybe it is not as important as focusing on the work itself, um, and what you would like to do. Um, but I think in any type of performance or any type of role, you cannot really control some of the environment and some of the circumstances. Um, so the the way we think about it, I'm just thinking of how I talk to to my speech students is, you're going to feel prepared if you've controlled the stuff that you can. And that's it. After Mm -hmm. that, you can't control who's barfing when. (laughs) Sure, sure. You have no control over that. What you can control is what happens 
in the moments where you realize it's happening, what happens in the moments after it happens. <laughs> um, are you going to get the towel? Are you going to keep going? Are you going to stop? Or, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, what are you going to do? Sure. I, yeah, I think, I think that's, that's perfect. I mean, that's, um, <laughs> probably just good advice for all of life. Control the things you can. Uh, don't worry about the rest or, you know, worry as little as you can about the rest. Um, I, I'm, I'm reminded in particular, um, that you, you know, you, you mentioned this tied into the readiness angle and, and David Allen, I was thinking, um, that, uh, again, that very first chapter of ready for anything is about, uh, in part, the importance of cleaning up because surprises are always mm. coming. And, you know, um, you want your decks as clear as possible to deal with those new things as they come up. You know, part of the reason mm -hmm. that, that he, he coaches people to collect everything that's got their attention and everything that's out of place in their world and e either get it where it goes or get it on a list um, is because something's going to come along that's going to surprise you and mess it all up. And uh, you'll be better able to deal with that surprise if you've got the rest of it under control already and you can just take a quick look and say, okay, well, all the rest mm -hmm. of this stuff can wait except for this one thing. You know, so I'm going to deal with the surprise and this one other thing. Yeah. Uh, and you know you're not ignoring or forgetting about or not getting to something else because of the surprise. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as, as he says, when in doubt, clean a drawer. Um, and I, I think it's it's good advice. Like if there's something you can take control of and can prepare for, go ahead and prepare for that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in life in general as well as with regard to specific situations. Mm -hmm. And I think what we're getting to here is that um, in order to be reactive and to handle the surprises, to a certain extent, I think you also have to be sort of psychically prepared. Um, because maybe the the list of things you haven't done isn't overwhelming, but mm -hmm. would be overwhelming in the height of some sort of frenzied surprise. And, it, right. it, and it's what, that's what you're saying too. But I'm just thinking yeah. about the ways that um, I'm thinking about the idea of feeling prepared, how uh, I think, and maybe I'm just thinking of maybe sort of big life stuff. Um, there's a lot of anxiety around doing what you can to prepare for things um, that in hindsight, <laughs> People will say things like, oh, well, the truth is you can never really feel totally prepared. You just have to trust that you are. Um, and for some reason, the only example I can think of is um, having children. And <laughs> we can't really speak to that experience, <laughs> either of us. Yes. No, no, <laughs> but, no children. Do you know what I mean? So far. I, so, and I'm trying, there's got to be a question in here I can pose to you, but I'm thinking about the idea or maybe difference of feeling prepared to being prepared. Yeah, um, I I think well. Um, Is there a difference? Does it matter? I, you know, I I think if you no, let me think about this. I think if you are, um, sorry, I'm trying to look something up while I'm talking, and I shouldn't do both. <laughs> uh, I'm cutting all of this out, um, except for the except for the smart parts. So I'm <laughs> cutting most of this out. <laughs> okay. All right. I found things. found what I was looking for. Um, <laughs> I'll get to that in a moment. So Hopefully. the difference between feeling prepared and and being prepared, I think, is a, is a very good question, and it's um, I I think they can 
depending on the context, I think they can be exactly the same thing, and I think they can be entirely different things. Um, mm-hmm. If if you uh, if you are truly, truly, truly a novice at something, if you have have no sense of what it takes to perform a certain kind of of act or to to act in a certain field. Um, and you do what you think is necessary to get prepared and then walk in, um, you're probably in for a rude awakening. And it doesn't matter how prepared mm. you felt you were. Say you're walking in, say you have a, you've never given a speech in front of people before. Mm-hmm. Um, and you are an average American. Um, and I'm, I'm stipulating average American because there are, I'm sure, people who, um, their natural inclinations are such that they're going to do a lot better the first time they get up in front of people. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Obviously, a lot of individual differences play into things like fear of public speaking. Um, but say you've never had to get up in front of people and do anything. You've just managed to skate all the way through elementary, junior high, high school, college, um, without really doing that by yourself, you Mm -hmm. know, in a situation where you've got a bunch of strangers looking at you and you've got to talk. Uh, and you've seen people do it. You know, you've, you've watched TV. (laughs) You know what it means to get up and give a speech. I've read a book. Um, your sense of what preparation you need to do to do that is very different maybe from what you really need, especially if you are someone who discovers when you get up there, you do have stage fright. Mm. Um, you, you do suddenly blank on everything you were going to say. Yeah. You know, um, stand up might be a good example. Stand up comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, you, as somebody who watches an HBO special with one of your favorite comedians, might have a very different sense of how much preparation it takes to, you know, before you can get up and do that and be funny and handle a heckler <laughs> if there is one. No. Um, <laughs> on the flip side, though, I do think there are cases where feeling prepared is the same as being prepared. Mm. Um, certainly in a lot of cases, a lot of activities, I think if nothing goes wrong, uh, if you feel like you're ready to handle anything that could go wrong and nothing does, then you were right. You know, that's a, Mm. that's a very superficial, easy example. But I think there's probably also a lot of cases where, um, you know, if you feel you're prepared, you're probably going to go do something that you wouldn't have otherwise. Uh, like if you spend an hour researching, you know, camping on the internet and you, you buy what you perceive to be the right gear, um, you would probably be willing to go further into the woods and spend the night there than if you didn't do those things. Sure. Um, and you're not, you know, um, you're, you're not the crocodile hunter, you know, you're not, you're not ready to go on survivor, although you probably are. I don't know how real that show is. (laughs) Um, but you know, you, you might feel very ready and, that leads you to take a chance and discover that, you know, for most people in most parks, camping is not that big a deal. <laughs> you are ready. You know, I don't mm-hmm. know. So, I don't know if I'm making sense or any of this is useful. Yeah. No, I think... But I, think I, I like, I like mm-hmm. the idea of feeling prepared, maybe being the important thing in some cases. Yeah. So what's interesting in your last example, though, and maybe um, you can clarify which way you meant, I could hear that as being a positive or a negative thing. Because what it sounded like you were saying was you are willing to take bigger risks, which could lead to greater reward or greater benefit or greater pleasure, mm-hmm. maybe in the case of camping. Um, right. But then when you started applying it to the example, I also thought, oh, but if you don't know that you... Bears. <laughs> bears, yes. Um, hypothermia, <laughs> dehydration, <laughs> lots of things could happen. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I don't know. So were you meaning it more in the terms of you know, positive risk taking? I, I think actually camping could maybe be a good example for, for 
you know, how it could go both ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of a question of, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Um, mm-hmm. in, in, uh, in project management, they, they talk about, you know, there's, there's the things that you know and you know you know, the known knowns. And then there's the things that you don't know, but you know about them. Oh, the yeah, known, yeah. the known unknowns. And then there's the things you don't know and you don't even know you don't know. Like the true surprises, the ones yeah. that you haven't even thought to like wonder about, the unknown unknowns. Um, and I, I think, I think if you feel, if you feel prepared, um, <laughs> if you feel prepared in some cases, if there are no unknowns, uh, unknown unknowns lurking, you know, uh, in those cases, you know, maybe, maybe feeling prepared is enough because it'll get you to take the risks. And there aren't any real, true, awful dangers that you couldn't foresee out there. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's a, it's a question of like what's actually lurking there. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I'm doing very good with this. <laughs> this no, the I topic, love actually. it. I, I like the, I do like the idea unprepared? of. I'm feeling unprepared. I do like the idea of, I don't know, the importance of feeling prepared. Yeah. Because um, I think it will get you to do things that you are more ready for than you know. And mm-hmm. and for that matter, going back to practice, like, if you feel prepared enough to do it, that's a, a type of practice. Um, I think I have not given as much, I haven't as done, done as much public speaking, I think, as you. And I certainly haven't coached anybody on it. <laughs> but I would think one of the most valuable kinds of practice you can have for public speaking is actual public speaking. Um, yeah you know there are you talk there are about things... doing the work on your feet right yeah. there's there's things you're not going to know until you've done it a few times mm-hmm. and tried it different ways right exactly yeah. not just repetition but play yeah. and, and get feedback um you know Absolutely. it's one thing i'm sure it's one thing if you show um i've heard this about speech speech coaching um it, not not from your domain specifically, but like, you know, professional, you know, consultants who go into companies and, and try sure. to get an executive up to speed. Mm-hmm. The one of the things they do, and I'd assume you do as well, is is record people and show them video of themselves. Oh, absolutely. Because there's things you will, you know, as soon as you see them, you're like, oh, of course, I shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I would assume, though, also that recording them in a room is very different from recording them actually doing their thing in front of people. Yeah. Um, no. That they will discover mm-hmm. they do different things, you know, at the live event than what they do, even when they're being recorded in practice. Mm-hmm. Or you might discover that in a giant room, people suddenly don't know what to do with their eyeballs or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, right. They right. don't know where to focus and how to scan stuff like that. <laughs> um, can I, can I go on a complete side tangent that has nothing to do with any of this? Absolutely. You talked about people not knowing what to do with their eyeballs. Um, <laughs> and, and I think the cliche, it's a, there's even an episode of 30 Rock I could link to that has, they talk about this. Uh, people don't know what to do with their hands. No, that's exactly what when, I was going When they're giving for. a speech or when they're on camera. Um, <laughs> I was, I was recently at, uh, with Courtney, I was at a, a birthday party for a two-year-old uh, that is the daughter <laughs> of a friend of the family. <laughs> And uh, the father, um, who's a, he's a guy who uh, – he works in a different company, but he works in my building downtown um, in finance. Mm-hmm. Uh, he came up to me at one point. He's like, hey, I, you know, I appreciate you coming out. I, I know it's probably a bit of a strange situation for you socially. And I, I said, well, you know, you know how people say like they give a, a speech in front of people and they don't know what to do with their hands? And he says, yeah. I said, I, I right now don't know what to do with my being. <laughs> <laughs> I was existentially out of place. Oh, that makes me Good think stuff. of the the line from How to Train Your Dragon. Did you ever see this film? I did not. Uh, Courtney has. She says um, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's actually pretty funny. Pretty good. Pretty well done. Um, so it's about training. 
<laughs> preparation. It's right there. It's right there in the title. Oh my god, it so is. Um, that's people's notes. homework. Yeah, that's people's homework for this episode. Just go watch that movie. That's pretty much the whole thing. Um, yeah. No, but the the uh, protagonist uh, Hiccup is his name. Mm. suitably um the whole sort of when they're establishing his character um people keep very openly referencing um his ineptitude his um lack of strengths just in general um Mm -hmm. so uh someone will be talking about like oh you know like all the problems you have and then he'll say things like you just gestured to all of me (laughs) (laughs) and then by the Mm. end the flip is someone says something positive and then he says wait you just gestured to all of me (laughs) (laughs) nice yes Mm. um oh and i had a really good way back but then i thought of that line too it's just very funny um i don't know what to do with my hands with my eyeballs practicing uh, something yes. that, the, so the quote I was trying to look up a few minutes ago, um, <laughs> something that occurred to me, yet another quote, uh, that occurred to me while, uh, you were talking about feeling prepared, um, and the, the relative importance or not of feeling prepared versus being prepared. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, that gets me thinking about just the certain kinds of preparation I, I think are almost in some cases for that feeling more than for the eventuality. Mm. Uh, like a lot of insurance you will hopefully not use most of the time you're carrying it, but you have it. You know, most people have their, their homes insured against, you know, if the house burns down, most people's houses won't burn down. Yeah. Um, but you have the insurance because you feel better about it. Also in, in many cases, because you have to, because, you know, you have a mortgage and the <laughs> bank wants your house to be insured. So you don't just shrug your shoulders and say, sorry, if it burns down. Right. Um, but but really, I mean, you know, if you owned your house outright, you would probably still have some insurance on it mm. if you could afford to. And the reason you do is, yes, it would help if there is a calamity. But even if there's not a calamity, you feel better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of preparation, I think, like that. And and you're talking about like things that could go wrong or be out of your control if you're giving a speech. Mm-hmm. Um, if you prepare to deal with those, I think in a lot of cases, you know, most of the time you probably won't be heckled, but it's good to know you could handle it. Yeah. The the feeling of confidence, the and even if you're wrong, and that that might be a good case where the feeling is the same as being prepared. Even if you're wrong and you wouldn't actually handle it very well, um, the fact that you that you feel like you could handle it um, will make you give more speeches than if you felt like you couldn't. You know, mm-hmm. that's one less thing to be afraid of, and in most cases you won't be heckled, so you may as well be right. Yeah. Um, so, mm-hmm. But the, anyhow, the quote, the quote, which is, might take us in an entirely different direction. <laughs> it's a favorite of mine, and it relates to to, a, to preparations more like insurance than like getting ready for things. But still, preparation. <laughs> uh, it is from Ambrose Bierce, uh, and it, <laughs> I actually first encountered this quote in a David Allen book. So, <sighs> taking my drink. <laughs> uh, he said, "Before undergoing a surgical operation, arrange your temporal affairs. You may live." <laughs> Mm. Um, and I, I always really like that. It's, it's kind of, uh, the idea, you know, like life insurance is, is not life insurance is not for the people you leave behind. It's for you. So you have peace of mind about leaving them behind. If that comes up, Mm. um, you know, that kind of idea, um, the having your, having your house in order will benefit everyone. If you disappear tomorrow, you know, if the surgical operation goes poorly, uh, but it will benefit you immensely more if you stick around. 
if you yeah. can. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So I like this idea of preparation as insurance. Um, it is the peace of mind. It is the just in case. Um, it is treating yourself better than you think you should. Um, which also, I can't remember what, what in particular made me think of this, but I'm also thinking about how preparation both requires and results in you trusting yourself more. Hmm. Maybe it was the woods thing. Yeah, maybe it was the woods thing because if you if you understood about the bears, <laughs> um, maybe you wouldn't have gone that far. But because you did trust yourself, or maybe you just trusted your purchase decision, you trusted your boots, you trusted your backpack, um, mm. you believed that you could go farther into bear country, <laughs> mm. for better or worse. Um, right. But I think somewhere in that process, if you if you throw yourself into preparation for something you are giving yourself a vote of confidence. You are allowing your, you, you're, you're allowing you to trust yourself um, mm. and to trust the plan and the process and the whatever. Um, I don't know. What do you think about that? I, I think it's an interesting idea. Um, I, I, you know, it's kind of a, I don't know, it's, it's almost like a virtuous cycle kind of thing where, um, yeah, that's, yeah. you know, if, yeah. You, if you trust yourself enough to try, Mm-hmm. And you start preparing because you're going to try. You start to become more trustworthy in that respect. Um, you know, trust. Trust being. Uh, I'm gonna draw on a, a, a Covey book. <laughs> speed of <laughs> the speed of trust by uh, oh, one of Stephen Covey's forty two sons. Um, <laughs> I forget which one. Probably one of them that's named Stephen. Jebediah. Uh, look it up for show notes but they they talk in that book about trust having two components like to trust someone you can trust their character but not trust their competence Mm. and and conversely you can trust their competence but not trust their character and really what you want is both Mm -hmm. um but in the case in in this case you know if you trust your own competence enough to think that you can try and you start preparing you start becoming more trustworthy in that respect like you do build a real competence um we we talked uh, maybe the last episode. I said you know you can believe yourself into something being impossible. You might not necessarily be able to believe some anything into being possible, <laughs> but you can believe things into being impossible. Oh, real fast! You can defeat you know, like crazy. Right. You 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 might not be able to believe yourself into um, being able to breathe underwater, but you can certainly believe yourself into drowning. You know, believe that you can't swim to such an extent that mm-hmm. you become petrified, freak out when you fall into water over your head and, you know, mm. drown in a panic. Mm-hmm. Um, this this might kind of be a case where that's somewhat, you know, reversed, though. To a certain extent, with something you can prepare for, maybe you can believe yourself into being able to do it. If you trust yourself enough to try, mm-hmm. um, you will start preparing. And as you prepare, you become more trustworthy. You believe even more you can try. You prepare some more. You know, and so on. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm really digging this. And this came to mind, so I'm going to say it. And I'm not sure how it's connected yet. <laughs> so <laughs> eh, you... Just go for it. <laughs> I'm going to go out of a limb and trust myself and trust you. Um... And if, if not, I will uh, revise it right out of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, no, no, you, no, no. So your role as a listener is to connect what I'm saying to what you just said. Okay. There's your goal. Teamwork here. Uh, <laughs> trust exercise. <laughs> <laughs> Trust fall. Without I've, the falling. 
I've got you. Just fall backwards. You're fine, Katie. I'm <laughs> right fall there. Fall down to yeah. I'm right where there. Your house is. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah, folks, we're not in the same room right now. <laughs> There's no. We're falling. not in the same state right now. <laughs> of being. Anyway, um, so what I'm thinking about is uh, I believe it was Nick Walenda of the Flying. Well, oh, that's hard to say. Flying Walendas. Um, I the, don't even know the words you're saying right no, now. No, hang on, hang on. It says people's names. These are humans. Um, it's the family of performers who have been doing tightrope walking for three or four generations. Uh, they were... Continuously? The answer is yes, but I don't know how, if you're trying to make a joke or not. Let's say yes and move on. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so family of performers... Um, yeah, this, I think I better check. He was on, um, a nationally televised walk across part of the Grand Canyon, maybe last year. NPR covered him. It was broadcast on, I don't remember what channel. Is this familiar at all? Do you remember this? Uh, if I remember it, you mean, am I Googling it right now? And am I looking at stuff about it? Then yes. Have you not heard of this dude? I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Nick Walenda. Um, did one of them walk between the twin towers when they were still standing? Uh, could that somebody be. Else? I'm scanning right now. Um, he or people in his family have walked across Niagara on a tightrope. Um, various other things. Hmm. Um, yeah, I'm looking at I'm I'm looking at the Wikipedia right now. Wow, that's a, <laughs> they have a family tree on Wikipedia. Yeah, no, no, no. This is like serious. They're legit uh, lineage. Oh, there's one named Aurelia. And that's that's isn't that the name of the the gal from um, Portugal on uh, Love Actually? Oh yeah. Oh, I thought you were making some connection to like what he does, and someone. No, no, I was no, like, no, no, no. <laughs> you haven't heard of this guy, but you know someone named Aurelia who does this. <laughs> this is making no sense to me. Like, I, where um, I don't even remember culture? what we're talking about today. What's the topic? <laughs> you should have prepared better. Oh wait, yeah. What? <laughs> uh, so what? So, so a flying a flying Walinda said something. Um, I cut all this out. <laughs> Why was I bringing him up? <laughs> <laughs> If you keep this in, you have to bleep it. <laughs> oh, I can do that. Um, you said something great, and then I thought of this guy. Oh, nope, I got it. I got it. <clears throat> Bingo! Okay. So, um, in the lead-up for this televised walk across part of the Grand Canyon, um, they did a lot of coverage. I think NPR did um, an interview, but also provide a lot of background about this guy's uh, very historic family lineage. Um, all these performers who have been doing these stunts for over a hundred years um, in various venues. Um, but he was talking about how I think in their particular community of performers, but in um, I think he was also sort of speaking generally. Um, they were talking about how it's a common and good practice to not perform stunts with nets or harnesses because if you practice, if you know that there's going to be a net below you that will catch you, if you fall, you have lowered the stakes of what you're doing and that affects how you prepare and how you concentrate on that mm -hmm. task. Interesting. Yes. Yes. That's, 
That's uh, <clears throat> that's the inverse of something that I I think I talked about when we were talking about choices about yeah we did um, yeah there's an example uh, I think I linked to Hiram Smith's book where he, he has a similar example to this but it's a very common self helpy thing about you know um, how we raise the stakes of things if if you were to walk across a two by four on the pavement in front <laughs> of your house you know that's no mm -hmm. big deal but if you put that same thing between two structures that are you know fifty stories tall and walk across them, you probably couldn't even begin, let alone finish. Mm -hmm. um, and it's because the stakes have been raised. Mm -hmm. um, and they're kind of saying the reverse, like, like you know, not necessarily that, that it's easier to do, but that it's, in a way, it's better to do it with the stakes raised, because then you engage and you really do it. Mm -hmm. So I guess the, I think the distinction is, because I, I completely agreed with you then, and I still agree with that idea, in instances where folks unnecessarily raise the stakes of a decision. In this case, I think the opposite applies and is true because the, <laughs> the task itself needs to be taken at its appropriate level. Mm -hmm. So I think in both cases, what we're getting at is take things at the level at which <laughs> reflect reality and are most helpful. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I think that's entirely uh fair i don't want to do any tightrope walking I'm looking at pictures now and going no nope not doing it man the videos mm, you gotta check some of this stuff out it's intense yeah i don't have i don't have much in the way of a fear of heights but i do have a very keen awareness of the danger of heights um <laughs> like my my desk in my building we're on the 27th floor and i'm right on a window oh. um and I, I have no problem looking out and looking straight down at the street and seeing what's going on, like mm -hmm. if sirens are going by or whatever. Um, you know, I have no problem with the view. I don't, I love flying. My favorite parts of flying are landing and taking off, mm -hmm. you know, which people with a fear of heights usually don't like those. Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, I've, I have very little problem with heights. Um, I'm great in Colorado when we're hiking, but at the same time, like, uh, when we were in Colorado in 2013, uh, me and Courtney and, and my in-laws, um, Anytime we were near somewhere where, you know, there's no railing and there's a big cliff down to a river, I'm always, <laughs> I was the one telling everybody like, no, let's take the picture from over here, like with 10 feet of ground between us and that cliff. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know. I'm not, I, and I wasn't scared. I wasn't scared to get fairly close and look down. Um, but I was also hyper conscious of, you know, <laughs> that is a long way to fall. And, uh, you know, we need to be super vigilant about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> don't turn your back on the cliff. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm thinking about that idea of, um, I don't know, it's like preparation is what you do so that you don't need a safety net. Right. It's not even the safety net. Yeah, it, it's what you way, do so that you don't need it. Right. And going back to the idea of, of, of feeling or, or of the Ambrose Beers quote, you know, the before undergoing a surgical operation – put your affairs in order, you may live. Mm -hmm. um, in in a way, maybe, it's even that, you know, good preparation is something that you do so you don't have to prepare. Um, you know, that the, the mm -hmm. best preparations are the ones where, uh, you know, you are practicing the thing you really need so that when the moment comes, if something does go wrong, you know, you've got the skills and you can handle it. Right. Um, I don't know if I've got a great example, but I guess, I guess like with, with, you know, going back to public speaking, mm -hmm. um, if you really, really, truly know your material and you know what you want to say, not in a word for word, I've memorized an essay kind of way, 
But like, you know the message you're trying to get across and you know it cold, you know it inside and out. You've asked yourself all the important questions. Like you've really prepared for it. You know, you don't really need to study your speech at that point. Um, and, and again, I'm talking specifically not like, not like you're trying to deliver a script kind of speech, you know, mm-hmm. not a, not a Obama, you know, at the mic with, with a teleprompter speech, but you know, just, just speaking in general to a group of people. Mm-hmm. If you really know the material, you don't necessarily need to prepare for every possible question or heckler or interruption, um, because you don't need to stick to a script. Mm-hmm. You just need to get an idea across. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I don't know. That's yeah. that's something that's occurring to me as we're mm-hmm. going along here. Um, and that is, by the way, a type of speaking that I'm not particularly good at. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, to be fair, we're kind of doing it, but it is. Right. right. It is dialogue, not uh, monologue. Yeah, we're, we're discovering. I mean, this is something where we're discovering as we go along. Yeah. Uh, again, yeah. this is the rough draft. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do the real thing later. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Preparation. Mm-hmm. For sure. So I guess um, maybe to to start to move towards wrapping it up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, something in particular I had in my notes to ask you. Um, with speaking in general, and and you know, if we can, we might make this more broad and talk about other types of work or life. But um, are there particular things that you observe um, the the people that you coach um, doing wrong in terms of how they prepare, um, or things that that you know you you push them towards as sort of you know best practices and getting ready? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so maybe the most. Um, helpful and sort of obnoxiously tricky thing is knowing what your own process of preparation feels like and is like and being reflective about it. So, so for instance, the example that jumped to mind is, uh, so one of the three sort of categories of speech events, um, in our line of competition is the interpretive events, which is, um, acting, but in the speech world. <laughs> um, so it's, it's performers doing texts, uh, from poetry, from scripts. Um, it could be prose, it could be drama, um, all sorts of things, but it's essentially acting. We just call it interpretation mm-hmm. because we're using the text themselves in front of us. Right. Um, so sometimes what can happen uh, in preparing for one of those events is although all of these events, all the prepared events are memorized word for word, um, from the script, of course, um, it's someone else's work. Um, your, your repetition of the way you're trying to craft that performance might become sort of emotionally stale if you were to do it too many times and it becomes a little too robotic or mechanical, does that make sense? Mm, mm-hmm, it does. Um, I'm um, yeah. I'm thinking of uh, the incomparable um, <laughs> when they were talking about. Uh, I think it's when they were talking about the Empire Strikes Back, or maybe it's when they were talking about um, uh, Episode One. But they were talking about a Star Wars movie and and the idea of having a script. I think it was Empire in particular. Mm. They're talking about having a script that's been rehearsed just to the right point, mm. where everyone has kind of found the line, but not to the point where they're all talking like they've read the script you know not getting too mm. polished so there's nothing there's nothing new or or you know surprising in it for them yeah no absolutely um 
Yeah. So, so a good sort of balance, like when I, when we're, we're talking to our students would be, um, what you're trying to do is pretty consistent every time, even if sometimes you are making new discoveries about mm-hmm. what a line might mean or might, how a line maybe should sound. Um, right. But so a really good constraint that maybe I should mention is um, most of the the speaking events are limited to 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that what's funny is in our activity, there are very few hard and fast rules especially for how a piece should be performed. There are lots of conventions and style preferences, um, but the only real constraint on the performance itself is the time limit, um, which I think is just interesting because we talk about it that way too when we're talking about, you no, know, there's so much freedom. There are so many choices you can make. But <laughs> at the end of the day, if you make it to a final round, and everyone else has prepared enough to stay within that limit, and you have not. That, and you go to ten oh one, right? That means a lot to some judges because it's it's one of the few things you can really control. Um, you can't control <laughs> what is it? There's no accounting for other people's taste, right? Absolutely. There's no accounting for taste. If your piece is a piece that your judge would never ever like in a million years, like okay, oh well. If you love it, then commit to it. That's okay. And just know that those people are out there. But Mm -hmm. if you choose not to obey the time and you don't prepare in a way that keeps it under time, well, that's something for the judge to think about. The other people have prepared in that way and you have not. So, yeah. 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 Because I'm thinking about, um, to your question about, like, not preparing well. So in addition to, obviously, the time constraint, um, which is a no-no. Yeah, in the interpretive events, there really is that fine line, that balance of consistency versus especially emotional staleness. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, There's an idea there that strikes me that I kind of like about over-preparing. Yeah, Um, sorry. Yeah, I should have said that more clearly. Absolutely. Yeah, no, or, and not just over-preparing, but also knowing what to prepare and, you know, what to practice and what not to, and... Um, I, I'm reminded of something that occurred to me last night while getting ready, and I, I had initially discarded <laughs> it because I didn't really know how it fit in, and also I knew I couldn't actually cite it. <laughs> um, because what I'm going to cite <laughs> is uh, the, um, I believe it was on an episode of the radio show Love Line with Dr. <laughs> Drew like 10 years ago. Oh my God. So. There's there's literally no way I'm ever going to figure out oh exactly God, where this so was or point to somewhere people could listen to it and make sure that this is actually true what I'm about to say. So <laughs> apologies to to any you know academics listening who are uh, count on me to cite everything appropriately in show notes. Um, <laughs> I can't. Uh, but anyhow, as as memory serves, it was J.R. Richards, the the original lead singer of Dishwalla. Hmm. Um, was on the show and was talking about like what touring life is like. Uh-huh. Um, and something he said that kind of stuck with me, um, that while he's on the road, most of his day is spent trying not to use his vocal cords and not talk. Uh-huh. And that he, he would warm up before the show, but the rest of the day he was doing everything he could to minimize how much he talked. He wouldn't ever sing for fun. You know, no singing along with the radio, no random jam sessions, because he had to have his vocal cords in top shape. You know, he couldn't afford to be hoarse the next night. 
wow. you know, when they when they when they get to Tallahassee and do the next show. Um, and so he would spend most of his time in the van, not talking, drinking a lot of water, drinking a lot of tea with honey, mm-hmm. you know, and just just doing everything he could to be silent until it was time to warm up. Um, wow. yeah. And and that really struck me as you know, it, it, you, you and I'm sure there's probably you know musicians or people who know musicians who will hear this and go oh that's stupid of course you can you can talk all day dar, 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 dar. <laughs> well he couldn't you know he, he <laughs> by this point he'd been touring for a decade or two and he knew you know yeah. um, what he could do and what he couldn't but that's a good example of someone that you might think well he's sort of like professional sports you'd expect probably spends more time practicing than playing but at mm-hmm. that point he's he knows he's at a point where he doesn't need to practice singing more he needs to preserve his ability to go out there and do it yeah um and i i think there's probably um as you know i am a sports medicine physician um mm-hmm. if you overtrain on the wrong thing you know you're going to destroy your muscles not build them Right. No, I think that ties in really nicely because you're also talking about a form of self-knowledge. Um, so kind of like with the, with the speech example, we can't always tell people, okay, student A, this is the point at which you're going to stop emotionally connecting and get bored with this piece. So stop mm-hmm. practicing when you get to this point because I can't know what that feels like for them. I can right. I can warn them that that feeling might come with a certain level of over over practice over preparation too much repetition whatever mm-hmm. um, but I don't know what it's going to feel like for them I can't you can you can tell them there is a point that exists where you will start looking like somebody who who has read the script rather than someone who <laughs> is experiencing these events right <laughs> but you can't necessarily tell them right it is after seventeen repetitions in one week you will begin to you know right like okay stephanie there's going to be a day when you turn into robot stephanie and we're we're not going to know it until you are robot stephanie (laughs) 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 like that's it i'm very sorry (laughs) Um, Uh, and maybe maybe that's that's a lot of the maybe um you know if we're I, I think right now we're giving the not quite useful advice of there is such a thing as too much preparedness and there is such a thing as too no, little no, no. preparedness. But <laughs> look um, out! <laughs> but it it occurs to me like maybe part of what we're saying here is a lot of being prepared and and what you're giving you know the one thing you can give the students a lot of being prepared is just knowing what is possible. Um, mm. You know you can't tell them how much is too much, but you can tell them that there is such a thing, and maybe something they might feel or mm-hmm. notice when they get close to that. So, so I think what we're suggesting is that preparation ought to be mindful. Mm. It ought to be personalized and it ought to be contextual. Yeah, we do like mindfulness. I feel prepared. Yeah, so now we should do the actual podcast. You have been listening to Priority. Once again, for complete show notes, or if you'd like to send us feedback via email or subscribe to the show, visit us on the web at priority.fm. If you enjoyed the program today, please go to iTunes and leave us a positive rating and review, as that will help new listeners find the show. Also, if you're interested in getting updates or communicating with us via tweets, follow us on Twitter, where we are at PriorityFM. That's at P-R-I-O-R-I. T-Y-F-N. Thanks again for listening. Um...
something about in speech preparation, this was a phrase that um, when I was on the team myself as a student, this became a sort of mantra for the week leading up to a tournament, um, was that we had recognized that (laughs) once we got to the van, so the school rented van that we'd be traveling to the tournament city or whatever in, Mm-hmm. Um, once we got to the van, we would always feel this big sense of relief that the, the preparation that we could do on campus on our own, that part was over. There's nothing else you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, so like all you can do now is get to the hotel, get to the school, do your thing. Like, right. even if you didn't do everything you wanted to, now you're on the van and you can't do anything else. Like that's right. a cutoff. So we turned that into a sort that we framed that in a positive way after we realized that. And we would say stuff to each other about, you just have to get to the van. <laughs> you don't have like to, it. you don't have to get to the round Saturday morning. You just have to get to the van. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And I don't, I think of that sort of thing when I'm preparing for other major events. Mm. Um, because if nothing else, it reminds me to sort of break things down. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not preparing for um, the absolute biggest and worst thing that could ever happen ever. Like right. I don't know. I'm just pre- and maybe it's maybe it gets back to that feeling prepared. Like I'm just getting myself ready enough. Right. Well, and it's yeah. It's it, whether or not um, whether or not you are prepared enough. Just the fact that you can't anymore. It's not a it's not a question you have to answer anymore. You've taken a choice off of the table, mm, you know, up mm-hmm. until then, every moment you can be wrestling with yourself. Well, I really need to cook dinner, but I should be polishing this. I should be practicing this line. I should be going back over, you know, this material. I should, you know, whatever you do to practice mm-hmm. for a speech, I should be making a voodoo doll of myself and <laughs> putting a tag on it that's a speaker. Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> got to get to the van. Yeah, just got to get to the van. 